Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would clear our minds and open our hearts, open our ears and our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things from your word. God, I pray that as we come, we would see what your will is for us, and that we would see how it is that you work in the world, and that we would see um, a picture of the goodness that you have shown to us in your Son as well. So help us to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're turning our attention to a seventh and I think final installment of our survey of some of the lesser known characters in the scriptures. Uh, So far we've considered God's mercy and his work uh, in the lives of six other saints, Old and New Testament. There was Obadiah, the great man of courage who hid the prophets in caves during days of persecution. There was Ebed-Melech, the compassionate Ethiopian who pulled Jeremiah, the prophet, out of the cistern, padding the ropes uh, in gentleness. There was Priscilla and her husband Aquila, Paul, the apostle's right-hand man and right-hand woman. There was Barzillai, the friend of King David, who was still serving God and still serving the king when he was 80 years old. There was John Mark, the one-time missionary failure turned New Testament author. And then there is Epaphras, the no-name planter of a church in the obscure little city of Colossae. And we've learned from them all. And finally, uh, this morning, with the Lord's help, we're going to turn our attention to a woman named Jehoshaphat, whose cameo appearance on the pages of Scripture comes here in the first three verses of 2 Kings chapter 11. So you're there, Lord willing, already, and I want to read to you verses 1 through 3. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons who were being put to death and placed him and his nurse in the bedroom. So they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Now this is a remarkable act of compassion and of courage. People were being put to death here, young boys, left and right. Athaliah, the queen mother, was ruthless and she was bloodthirsty and yet this brave woman, Jehoshaphat, at the risk of her life, stepped into the fray, scooped up this baby boy marked for destruction and hid him away for six years to keep him alive. And that would be a wonderful story, wouldn't it? No matter when it took place and no matter where it took place. But these three verses are particularly moving and instructive and important when we consider the backdrop against which they occurred when we consider the setting and the place and the time and the meaning of it all. And so I want to try and hang the backdrop up for you behind these verses this morning, just to set the scene a little bit. Now, you may recall um, that several generations before these events, the nation of Israel split in two. David had ruled well, Solomon had ruled well in the beginning and then been foolish, and Solomon's son, David's grandson, was even more foolish than his father had become, and because of his foolishness, the people of God were rendered asunder. Now, that's always a sad thing, whether we're discussing an Old Testament kingdom or a modern church, but that's the way it was in ancient Israel. The country was split in two. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel 
the ones that were situated to the north separated themselves from the other two tribes, and those ten tribes kept the name Israel. The other two tribes in the south came to be known as the nation of Judah after the larger of the two tribes. And it was in Judah, that southern kingdom, where the temple of God was located and where the Christ foreshadowing uh, sacrifices took place in the temple. It was in Judah where the priests of God still ministered. And so having chosen to cut themselves off from these things, both politically and geographically, the northern kings and their people became more and more idolatrous with wicked king Ahab serving as the poster child for this abandonment of the one true God. The southern kings, on the other hand, while they had their foibles, continued by and large to worship and walk with the one true God. But after a few generations had come and gone, one of those Judean kings, one of those southern kings, Joram, who's mentioned here in verse 2, made a dreadful mistake. Instead of marrying a woman who feared the Lord, Joram married an idolater, a Baal worshiper. And not just any Baal worshiper. No, Joram actually did something that when we look back on it is actually unthinkable. He married this woman, Athaliah, verse 1, who was either Ahab's niece or Ahab's daughter. We're told that she was the granddaughter of Omri, which was Ahab's father. So she was probably Ahab's daughter, perhaps his niece. And Ahab, you remember, was the idolatrous king of their northern neighbors. And so here's this king whose family has walked with God for these generations, now marrying a woman who worships Baal. And the two of them together, Joram and Athaliah, began driving the once faithful nation of Judah into the same wickedness, into the same idolatry that had existed among their northern neighbors. It wasn't long before this king Joram died, and his youngest son, Ahaziah, became king in his place. All Ahaziah's older brothers and their children were already dead, we are told in Second Chronicles 22. And when, here in verse 1, Ahaziah himself died in his mid-twenties, all that was left of the royal family of David were a few young sons of this very young king who had died in his twenties. And in this turn of events, the whole royal family reduced to a few little boys Ahaziah's mother saw a great opportunity, and that's what we read about here. Instead of allowing the kingdom to pass to one of her grandsons, she saw this as an opportunity to usurp the throne for herself. And in order to do this, we read there in verse 1 that she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. In other words, this woman Athaliah slew her own grandsons so that she could be queen. She was a cruel a ruthless, a cold-blooded woman, which is no surprise given that Ahab and Jezebel were her forebears, and given that she was, therefore, a worshiper of Baal and a hater of the one true God. And just as an aside, before we carry on, Athaliah is a reminder here, albeit an extreme one, of what can happen when a person who is in covenant with the one true God chooses to marry someone outside the faith. King Joram's family had been faithful up until this Point. But his marriage, with his father's help to this pagan woman, not only carried him astray to worship idols and into all manner of sin, but it almost completely destroyed his family and his kingdom altogether. And so I just say to those of you who are single, I plead with you to take this as a warning, not to dupe yourself into thinking that 
this kind of difficulty and this kind of chaos will pass you by if you choose to do what Joram did, that you're the exception to the rule. I plead with you, if you're here this morning and you're not married, not to marry outside the faith, no matter how sweet or attractive or promising he or she seems to be. All the devil needs in your life, as Joram teaches us, is a foothold, and great misery and destruction can come about. That's just an aside. But I don't want to dwell on Athaliah or on her idols. My intent this morning is to focus on her daughter, Jehoshaphat, and on the one true God who blessed and used Jehoshaphat marvelously. So you'll notice there in verse 2 now that Jehoshaphat was the sister of Ahaziah, the king, the young king who had just died, and she was also the daughter of Athaliah's late husband, Joram, the previous king. And therefore, what we understand is that Jehoshaphat was either the daughter or perhaps the stepdaughter of this ruthless queen, Athaliah. And yet somehow, also, she was a worshiper of the one true God and not of the idols of her parents. We don't know exactly how that happened, how Jehoshaphat, being brought up in such a wicked family, came to trust the Lord. But it's evident from this passage that she did. Because when she scooped up her nephew and went into hiding, her place of refuge, verse 3, was in the house of of the Lord. She ran to the temple so that she might take refuge in God and from his priests. Indeed, we're told in 2 Chronicles 22 that she was married to one of them, a man named Jehoiada. And so this Jehoshaphat was a believer in spite of her family background, and she was a brave believer at that. Because, as we said a few moments ago, it must have required tremendous courage for Jehoshaphat to have done what she did. It's hard for a young woman to stand up against an unbelieving mother in any circumstance, isn't it? But Jehoshaphat's situation was infinitely more difficult because her mother or stepmother, whichever one it was, was not just any mother or stepmother. She was a murderer. And she wasn't just any murderer either. She was killing her own grandsons, Jehoshaphat's nephews. And so surely Jehoshaphat understood that if her mother thought that she was standing in her way, she would have no qualms about killing her as well. And yet, in spite of all these things, Jehoshaphat acted. Isn't that amazing? She trusted in the Lord and she acted, even though it may have cost her her life. She knew that she couldn't save all the royal offspring, but if she could at least rescue the baby, Joash who was about a year old when all this treachery took place, that would be something, and that's what she did. And so we read in verse 2 that she snuck into the place where the king's sons were being kept, awaiting execution, and she stole her little nephew away. In verse 3, she hid him for six years in a little room in the temple complex there in Jerusalem. The temple complex had little rooms where they stored things and kept things and Probably this bedroom that it's talking about is not someone's bedroom, but it's the room where they kept all the extra bedding and mattresses. And so that would be a good place where she could hide this little boy and his nurse. And I say that this was incredibly gutsy for her to do. Not just the initial act of stealing him away either, but for six long years, Jehoshaphat every day went to the market attended family gatherings, went and worshipped at the temple, and went to bed at night, never knowing when her secret might come out, and never knowing, therefore, when her head might come off. So just picture yourself. Six years, 2,190 days, constantly wondering 
when the other shoe was going to drop. Never knowing when you wake up in the morning if this day will be your last. That is the life that Jehoshaphat chose for herself. And she's just another reminder, as we've seen in a couple of other of these minor characters, of the great call for Christian courage, of the call for God's people to fear the Lord more than they fear the queen, to fear the Lord more than they fear their boss or the government or that unbelieving family member or whoever it may be. Courage, that's what she had. And as our own culture, like Judah in Athaliah's day, slips further and further into the abyss of idolatry, this is the great need and will be an even greater need of the hour in our own land. Courage to stand up for what is true and what is right and what a portrait of it we have in this young woman, Jehoshaphat. And let me just say also in passing that Jehoshaphat is another reminder of the Bible's high praise for women. We've said this before when we talked about a Priscilla, but let me say it again. Never allow someone to get away with calling God or the Bible or biblical Christianity chauvinistic. The Bible is filled with praise for faithful, courageous, fruitful women. And this is one of those places. Jehoshaphat is a reminder of the high value that God places in his word on faithful women. And so some of you women can be encouraged that God values you and notices your service as well. Now let's consider a handful of other lessons we might learn from this remarkable woman named Jehoshaphat and from the circumstances here in 2 Kings 11, namely three lessons. The first one is very simply the sanctity of human life. We learn from what Jehoshaphat did, the sanctity of human life. Now this is not, of course, the main point of this passage, so I won't dwell long on this portion, but it's worth saying that Jehoshaphat's actions would have been courageous and praiseworthy and exemplary even if the boy she was rescuing had not been the rightful king, and even if the boy she was rescuing had not been her nephew, and even if her actions had taken place in Jersey rather than in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter. She was rescuing a child. Now, Yes, the circumstances around this rescue operation make Jehoshaphat's actions all the more important, and we'll see that. But rescuing a helpless child is significant and it is imperative, no matter what the circumstances may be. And so it's a reminder to us that something like abortion is not simply a political issue. It's not something that is just one of several debatable issues in a candidate's platform at election time. It's a matter of a real, live child millions of them, even if they're not destined to become a king or a president or a missionary or whatever, they're valuable in the sight of God. And if we don't have the courage and compassion to do with our little measly votes what Jehoshaphat did at the risk of her life, then something is very sad indeed. And of course, our imitation of Jehoshaphat ought to extend to more than just our voting habits come November, right? It ought to extend to include our pocketbooks, to include our efforts to get our feet moving and our hands dirty, helping groups like Pregnancy Care that rescue children. It ought to include our willingness to encourage young women that we know who are in our spheres of influence to have the courage of this woman Jehoshaphat and to allow their children to have the future of this little boy Joash. And some of us indeed might consider, like Jehoshaphat, taking one of these unwanted children into our own care by means of adoption. And also, this concern for the sanctity of human life touches the issue of child trafficking as well, which is epidemic in parts of Asia right now and is becoming more and more of a problem on our own shores. 
Who's going to have the courage to follow Jehoshaphat into those dark rooms where these children are being kept for destruction and steal them away if it's not God's people? Who is going to have the passion and the fortitude to kick down the brothel doors and bring the little Joashes and Joannas out and under the protection of the Lord? There are groups, Christian groups like World Vision, there are groups like International Justice Mission who are on the ground already rescuing little boys and girls from these horrors. And some of you might look them up on the web and find out how you can partner with them and with Jehoshaphat and with God in rescuing little children. As I say, this isn't the main lesson to be learned from this passage, but it's a monumental and important lesson, the sanctity of human life, the value of children to God, and I hope that we learn it ourselves. But now, secondly, I want you to notice from the example of Jehoshaphat the glory of hidden service. So the sanctity of human life, but now notice the glory of hidden service. By their very nature, Jehoshaphat's actions were going to be hidden from public view, and for good reason, of course. If what she did began to be whispered around the streets and alleyways of Jerusalem, it would soon be off with her head. So we're not surprised when we read that her compassion and courage were hidden for those six years. Boasting about these things or being patted on the back for them would have been self-destructive, of course. But I want you to consider the hidden nature of what Jehoshaphat did for God and for Joash from another angle. I want you to think about the challenge of those six years in a different way than we've done so far. Because, yes, one nagging thought in the back of Jehoshaphat's mind for those 72 months would have surely been the concern that she would be found out and punished. But if she was like me at all, there would have been another nagging thought, perhaps, in the back of her mind. Namely, the reality that as heroic as her actions had been, no one but her husband and the baby's nurse knew anything about them. You see, by the very nature of Jehoshaphat's actions, she could not bask in the glow of her accomplishments. She could not be patted on the back or praised or considered a heroine. And I don't know if those thoughts ever bothered her, if the hidden nature of her valor ever bugged her, if she longed for a little more credit than what she was getting. But if I had been in her shoes for six years, I may have been bothered, and you might as well. And so the hidden nature of her service to God and Joash is worth our brief consideration. Her actions by their very nature were hidden. No one would know how courageous she had been. No one would realize that a heroine was living in their midst. No one would even know that she and her husband were spending the time and money and energy it must have taken to raise that child from the age of one to the age of seven. No, if she was going to be courageous and she was going to be faithful and mother this child as her own, Jehoshaphat knew going in that she was going to have to do this in exchange for the applause of no one but God. She knew going in that she would have to do this looking to a long-term reward rather than any immediate gratification. She would have to do it simply because it would render her faithful, not because her heroism would make her famous. And we should probably also notice that when young King Joash finally was ready to be brought out into public view at age 7, in verses 4 and following, it was not Jehoshaphat, but her husband, Jehoiada, who stepped into the limelight at that moment. 
And rightfully so, I'm sure he was heroic as well. But while Jehoiada's heroism was played out now in a very public and national scale, beginning in verse 4, his wife's six years of gallantry and courage were undertaken completely behind the scenes. And so I just say perhaps it's helpful for each of us from time to time to ask ourselves if we are willing to have our lives and our service to God play out the way Jehoshaphat did. Now, I know that none of us expects that we'll ever be famous, but on a smaller scale, we all like to be recognized, don't we? We, mean, we like it. It's a good thing when people tell us thank you. We feel gratified when someone notices how well we taught that class or how good we are with the children in the nursery or how seamlessly that fellowship meal went or how well we played that instrument or how tasty the casserole was that we made. And, of course, we ought to recognize one another in these ways. Charles said that on Wednesday night, rightly. The value of coming alongside one another and praising one another's faithfulness. We ought to do for one another what I'm trying to do for Jehoshaphat this morning, namely point out how other Christians are worthy of imitation. But I have to ask myself, how do I feel when no one does that for me? How do I feel when my faithfulness or courage or effort seem to go unnoticed? And maybe an even more pivotal question that I need to query my soul with is this. Would I, like Jehoshaphat, do what I know God is calling me to do even if I knew going in that no one would find out how well I did? Would you or I be willing to do what Jehoshaphat did to risk our lives or even just to put ourselves under the financial and emotional strain of those six long years if we knew ahead of time that we weren't going to receive any credit for it? Are we willing to perform service even when it's just for God's eyes? Indeed, do we sometimes do our service intentionally in such a way that it will be just for God's eyes? Do we intentionally keep our left hand from knowing what our right hand is doing? There's a glory in doing that, you know. The glory of hidden service. Because didn't Jesus teach us in the Sermon on the Mount that the most faithful prayer is secret prayer? And that the best giving is secret giving? And that the most praiseworthy fasting is secret fasting? There's a glory in hidden service, Jesus tells us. Why? Because when you serve without any concern for the praise of other people, and when you serve intentionally in such a way that no one will have to know that you are the one who did it, both you and God know that you're really serving him and not just your own reputation. And, says Jesus, on three consecutive occasions in Matthew 6, your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So I wish that I could, and, and I hope that I will, better learn this lesson, the glory of hidden service, the glory of not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And I hope that you will as well. And I hope finally that we'll learn this third lesson just as well, if not better. We're going to spend a good deal more time on it, namely the pattern of God's providence. The pattern of God's providence. That's what we learned from this story. Now, make no mistake, this is surely a story about the compassion and the intervention of this young woman, Jehoshaphat, right? That's what we've been saying. But far more than that, this is a story about the compassion and intervention of Jehoshaphat's God. 
After all, Jehoshaphat, like us, could do nothing apart from the Lord. It was God who put her in the royal family in the first place so that she might be in a position to save Joash's life. And it was God who saved her out of the idolatry of her parents so that she might have the heart to save Joash's life. And it was God who protected her from being found out when she saved Joash's life. Indeed, as we saw in verse 3, it was in God's own house that she and the baby went for refuge. So more than anything else, this is a story of God's intervention in this woman's life, through this woman's life, and in the life of this little baby named Joash. It's God's intervention. And the story, just you might notice, has a familiar ring to it, doesn't it? A baby boy who's destined to do great things for God. A monarch who feels threatened and wants the baby dead. And a courageous young couple who takes great risk in order to protect that little life. Where have you heard that story before? 2 Kings 11 sounds strikingly similar to Exodus chapter 1, doesn't it? It sounds much like the story of young Moses. And It sounds strikingly similar to Matthew chapter 2 as well, where Mary and Joseph had to take the baby Jesus into hiding to protect him from a bloodthirsty and ambitious ruler, namely King Herod. Now, why do I point that out, that this story sounds like Moses and sounds like Jesus? Simply to say that there is a pattern in God's providence. There is a pattern in the Bible. And we can't always predict the details the exact details of how God is going to work situations out. But that doesn't mean that God is unpredictable. There are patterns in the way that God works. Oftentimes, he does the same kind of thing again and again and again so that we'll know it's him and so that we'll know to expect what he may do. And so we've just seen this pattern with these baby boys and these jealous monarchs and these courageous young couples. But there's even a broader pattern to notice in the stories of Moses and Joash and Jesus. Besides just the, the, the details of the kings and the, the death potential and so on. There's a broader pattern that's there. Namely, that God often seems to allow his cause and his people to hang by a single thread before he steps in and saves the day. That's a pattern in the Bible, that God often seems to wait until all hope seems gone before he intervenes. Isn't that what we see here in 2 Kings 11? And what we saw in the parallel in the lives of Moses and Jesus? What would happen if Moses had died? More importantly, what would have happened if Herod would have succeeded in killing Jesus? It was that close. And it seems in each of these cases, like God allow things to almost totally collapse in on themselves. And here in this story, we should ask, what would have happened if Joash had died? Who would have been king of Judah? I've already told you that Second Chronicles 22 tells us that Joash's uncles were all dead. And we read here that his father was dead. His grandfather was dead. Athaliah is now killing all of his brothers. And Second Chronicles also tells us that all of his cousins and uncles, the entirety of the last three generations of the royal family, were dead, slain by various people. Some by the Arabs, some by Jehu, some by Joram, Joash's grandfather, and now some by Joash's grandmother. Everyone in the 
royal family, all the males are dead except this little boy, Joash. He alone is left. Now, I suppose it's possible that somewhere there was a seventh cousin from way back in David's family lineage that could have been tracked down in his farmyard somewhere and they could have said, you're the king, and brought him to Jerusalem. But it seems unlikely that that would have happened. And indeed, it did not happen for six years as Athaliah wrongfully usurped the throne. No one stepped forward during all that time and claimed, hey, I'm a distant ancestor of David. I'm the rightful king. And the author of Kings does tell us that aside from Joash, all the royal offspring were dead, verse 1. Maybe he just meant the immediate royal family dating back to Athaliah's husband, Joram, but he very possibly could have been taking into consideration all of David's spread out family tree, eight generations worth, and saying that from eight generations of cousins that had lived and gone before Joash, every single one of them was dead except for him. So the implications of this passage seem to be this. If Joash had died, this royal dynasty that stretched all the way back to King David, now nine generations, would have died with him. You say, okay, well, monarchy dynasties die off all the time. But if this one had died, how could God have fulfilled his promise that David would never lack an heir to sit on the throne. That's what God promised, you know. Way back in 2 Samuel 7, God guaranteed that David's family dynasty would last forever. But now, he seems to have come dangerously close to having let that promise be wiped completely out by Athaliah. And my question is... How could God have even let it get that close? Yes, he stepped in and intervened, but how could he have let it get that close? How could he have let the situation escalate to the point where all the royal offspring were thought to be dead and the one living heir to David's throne was a one-year-old baby boy? Think about that. All of God's promises rest on a one-year-old. He's the only one left. And you know in those pre-vaccination, pre-hospital, pre-modern medicine days, babies died all the time. And so how on earth could God have cut it so close? Well, he could do so for one thing because he's absolutely sovereign, right? He is God. So it didn't matter what the statistics or the odds may have been against his promise. It didn't matter what Athaliah promised to do. It didn't matter that there were no vaccines. God knew that he could and would keep baby Joash alive and healthy, and he did so. So we understand how God could cut it so close, but the question is, why would he? Why would he get to a place where the people actually thought that the promise was dead? For six years, they assumed that all the king's family was dead and that the promise was therefore dead. How could God or why would God allow his promise and his kingdom to hover so close to extinction? Why didn't he just squash Athaliah like an ant beneath his big toe? Why did he allow things to unravel to the place where it took this amazing intervention this unlikely intervention to keep Joash and the kingdom and the promises to David alive. And why did God do the same thing with Moses and Jesus? In fact, why did God so often in the Old and the New Testament seem to wait until things seemed almost 
irreversible and unredeemable unredeemable before he stepped in and intervened. Why does God seem sometimes to let his people and his cause hang by a single thread where at any moment if the wrong thing happens, it all collapses? Why does God do that? I'll tell you why. God allowed this situation in 2 Kings 11 and so many others like it in the Bible. He allowed them to get to a place where things seemed almost totally helpless so that his people would know that it was he and not themselves and not their enemies and not their circumstances that was in control of their lives and in control indeed of world history. In other words, think about it from two directions. If God, on the one hand, never allowed his people to get to a place where all their planning had failed and all the momentum seemed against them and all human efforts seemed like nothing more than spinning their wheels. If, in other words, God allowed everything always to go smoothly for his people up front all the time, they might actually mistake what is God's blessing and think that it was actually the fruits of their own planning and wisdom and effort. Everything went well off the top. If everything went well off the top for us, we might begin to think that it was because of us and that we were pretty smart and clever. And so God lets things that we have planned unravel, not because he's cruel, but because he wants to remind us that it's God who wins the day, not our planning. But if, on the other hand, when things unravel, if God did not intervene to pull us out of the quicksand, if he did not interpose to snatch us from Athaliah's grip, then we might begin to think that queens and circumstances and the winds of chance actually rule the day. And so to put it more simply, in the Bible, God often waited until the last possible moment to intervene on behalf of his cause and on behalf of his people so that they might know that their lives were in his hands and not their own and so that they might also learn that their God and not kings or queens or rulers or circumstances rules in heaven and in earth. That no matter how bad things get, God can intervene. And no matter how well we plan, God is the one who makes our plans to rise or to fall. And so in order that we might learn this lesson, these kinds of last minute, impossible turnarounds become a pattern throughout the Bible. And the obvious application of that is simply this. If these sorts of last minute impossible turnarounds are a pattern throughout the Bible, we should not be surprised if God sometimes waits until all hope seems gone before he intervenes in our lives as well. We should not be surprised if we find ourselves in places where we seem to be out of options. We shouldn't be surprised when we find ourselves in places where all we seem to be able to do is desperately cry out in prayer and maybe just get out the word help. You may sometimes find yourself in exactly this position as it relates to some health or financial concern. It seems like God is not coming through and he'll come through at the last minute. Or you may find yourself sitting there as a loved one lies on the hospital bed seemingly unconscious on his or her deathbed and still hasn't confessed Christ. And from a human perspective, all hope seems gone. It's not... an exciting place to be, but perhaps it's a good place to be so that we can remember, even though I can't do anything, it's not too late. God specializes in intervening once all of my options have run out so that I might know that it was his doing and not my doing. 
on a larger scale, I think we'll all agree that our Western and American cultures seem to be rapidly declining as well to the point of no return. We seem to be almost out of options spiritually in our Western world. It seems impossible that our society and schools and government and national priorities and neighborhoods could ever return to the days when the churches were filled and the businesses were closed on Sundays and the school day began with prayer and the Ten Commandments were welcomed in the courtroom and the Bible deeply affected government policy and public policy. It seems like those days are long gone, never to return. But the line of David in 2 Kings 11 seemed to be long gone, never to return as well. And look what God did. So while America certainly, hear this well, America does not have the promises that David and the people of Judah had. The fact remains that God could still at the last minute intervene and revive us again. Wouldn't that be just like God to do? And who knows but that he could do the same for our church or for your lost relatives or for our backslidden brothers and sisters or for former members who have fallen away or for our own struggling and sinful souls. You may be sitting here this morning, in fact, feeling as though you've sinned your way past the point of no return. And perhaps those around you are telling you the same thing or they would tell you that if they were honest. Everything seems past the point of forgiveness and restoration. Just like for six years, the people of Judah must have thought that everything was past restoration as well. For six years, while Joash was in hiding, the people must have thought the dream was over, that their sins and their ruler's sins had taken them beyond the point where they could be forgiven and restored as a nation. But God brought the royal dynasty almost back from the dead, beginning in 2 Kings eleven four. And he can do the same for you, however far gone you may feel yourself to be. If you would only turn to him and to his son, Jesus, you would be amazed at how he loves to intervene when it seems like all of your options have run out. And speaking of Jesus, we cannot leave 2 Kings 11 without considering him. And I'll show you why. 2 Samuel, remember, told us that God had promised David that his descendants would rule on a throne that would have no end. 2 Samuel 7. And the rest of the Old Testament, for instance, Isaiah 11, makes it clear that that promise to David that his kingdom would have no end would actually be fulfilled in the coming of this one called the Messiah, the Savior of God's people. In other words, the Savior of God's people, the one who would lay down his life for their sins, the one whose name we know as Jesus, was going to come from the house and family of King David. Jesus, our Savior, was destined to be a direct descendant of this king and of this family that we've been reading about this morning. And that's a wonderful promise, isn't it? God is going to protect the line of David and they're going to rule forever because the Savior is going to come and he's going to live forever and he's going to reign on the throne throughout eternity. A wonderful promise. But it must not have seemed all that wonderful for the people living in the first three verses of 2 Kings 11. Because remember I told you that Ahaziah's father and all of his brothers and all of his uncles and all of his cousins and now all of his nephews were dead and he was dead and so the last three generations of royal heirs were all dead except for 
these little boys. And when Ahaziah died in 2 Kings 11.1, Athaliah rose and destroyed all the little boys as well, or so she thought. And in recognizing that she thought and the people thought that all of the little boys and all of the royal family was dead, I want you to fully realize what was at stake here in verses 2 and following. If God had not raised up Jehoshaphat to rescue one of these little boys, and if God had not kept that little boy alive until he was ready to be king and until he someday was ready to bear sons of his own to perpetuate the line, if God had not done what he did in verse 2, not only would his promises to David have fallen to the ground unfulfilled, but his promises to the world may well have fallen to the ground unfulfilled as well. Because remember, the Savior of the world was going to come through this very family, through the house and line of David, through these sons and grandsons and great-grandsons in this very family that we're reading about this morning. But were it not for Jehoshaphat, there would have likely been no more sons or grandsons or great-grandsons. Yes, I said already that there's a possibility that there was a distant cousin somewhere, a long-lost descendant of David about whom only God knew and who could have come and become the heir to the throne and the conduit of the promises. But if God knew about some person like that, no one else seems to have known about him because, remember, Athaliah reigned for six years as a usurper with no challenger from anywhere else in David's nine generations long lineage. And so the possibility is strong that even all the distant cousins were gone and that Joash really was was the last teeny little branch in David's entire family tree. It's possible, in other words, that the sons and the grandsons and the great-grandsons that God had promised were all going to have to grow out of this one little stem. And so if the stem dies in verse 2, there will be no sons and there will be no grandsons and there will be no great-grandsons. And if there are no sons and grandsons and great-grandsons in the line of David, what would have become of baby Jesus? Do you see? Without 2 Kings 11-2, there may well have been no Matthew 2. There may well have been no Mary and Joseph, descendants of David, on their way to Bethlehem to register for the census because Joseph was of the house and family of David, and so was his wife Mary. There may have been no manger and no stable, and no wise men, and so on. And one wonders if there had been no sons and grandsons and great-grandsons of the line of David, if there would have been a baby Jesus at all. And if there had not been a baby Jesus born into the line of King David, there would have been no cross and no resurrection and no second coming and no hope for us sinners. If Jesus had remained in heaven and never come as a human descendant of David, we would all be dead men and women walking. And we could go on and on, I suppose, conjecturing about what may have happened or what may not have happened had Joash died here in 2 Kings 11. But the point is that God was not going to let those frightening possibilities come about. God had made a promise not only to David but to mankind. He would send a Savior who would be born into the family of David and who would die for our sins. And nothing was going to stand in God's way. This baby would be born. So that that baby, Jesus, would be born and would die for our sins, period. 
Herod couldn't prevent it from happening in Matthew 2. Satan couldn't prevent it from happening as he tempted Jesus in Matthew 4. Peter couldn't prevent it from happening as he argued with Jesus in Matthew 16. And neither could Athaliah snuff out God's grand design here in 2 Kings 11. God would send his son as the heir of David as the king of the world, and that son would save his people from their sins. And therefore, how thankful should we be for God's work and the life of this no-name young woman named Jehoshaphat? Through her courage, God not only kept Joash alive, but he kept the lifeblood of Jesus alive. And in doing that, he kept you and I alive as well. And what a note for us to finish this series on, thinking about Jesus. There's so many marvelous minor characters in the Bible. We've just touched the tip of the iceberg with these seven. There's so much we can learn from them, but more than anything else, all of them point us beyond themselves to the Bible's central character, Jesus, the fairest among 10,000. We have been, for these several Sundays and Wednesdays, gathering together these various lessons from these various lives like wildflowers. But if we've been looking closely, we will have noticed the footprints of Jesus, the master gardener, all throughout the fields that we've been perusing. He is the one who made these men and women what they were. Indeed, we might say that for seven sermons now, these various men and women of the Bible have, by their example, shown the way for us, shining like the silver light of the moon on a clear night so that we can see where to go in the darkness of the world. But Jesus is the sun whom these moons reflect. These obscure men and women so much like us in their sinfulness and their frailty have refreshed our souls, I hope, week by week by week with their faithfulness. They've been to us like clear streams of water flowing to us Sunday by Sunday in the dry wilderness of this world, but Jesus is the ocean into which they all flow. And so it's my great prayer that through these bit characters and these minor actors, we might have come to know just a little more of the great player in God's grand drama of redemption, a little more of their Savior and ours, wonderful, beautiful Jesus.